So this magnifies things so that I can so I can see what I'm doing out of this. We're in 2 Corinthians. We're going to hit chapters 8 and 9. And um, these two chapters repeat the principles of giving that Paul gave us in chapter 2. And we're going to review those just after I pray. And then we'll take an in-depth look at these two chapters as we go through those. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the principles that your word teaches us. Thank you for the grace and mercy that you give us. And Lord, we give ourselves to you. That's what you want. Our giving begins with giving you our hearts. And so, Lord, we do that right now. Open our our minds and our hearts to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the principles of giving, let's look at those real quickly. I'll just kind of, they're on the uh, screen up there. Number one, giving should be, should be brought to the church. So the church kind of becomes the, the body of Christ. And uh, the New Testament teaches that that's kind of where our, um, our giving should begin then giving should come from our heart. It should be measured proportionately according to our ability to give. It should be handled openly and honestly by those in the church where the, uh, that have that responsibility. And then giving does bring blessings to us as we give to the Lord. And then last and most important, giving will bring glory to God. These two uh, chapters, Paul challenges us to excel in the ministry of giving. So the first principle is in verse 1 of chapter 8, giving should be brought to the church. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Paul begins by telling them of what God in his kindness and grace has done through the churches there in Macedonia. You can see on the map, mainly Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Notice Paul doesn't call their monetary offering a gift, but he calls it a grace. Receive God's spiritual favors, his grace, and you'll want to do something tangible in return, and giving is that answer. This leads right into the second principle found in verses 2 through 9. Giving should come from the heart. He says in verse 2, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, those churches of Macedonia, and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. He is saying that the churches in Macedonia were experiencing heavy persecution at that time, and the phrase translated deep poverty is kind of graphic. It's like rock-bottom destitution. It's like they were dirt poor in those churches. Yet out of their deep poverty, there was an abundant, joyful desire to contribute to the struggling Jerusalem believers who had a greater need. These faithful people show us that if you wait until you can afford to give to the Lord to start, that you'll never start. Our willingness to give isn't as much about what's in our bank account as what's in our heart. Verse 3, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. These churches in Macedonia were giving until it hurt, trusting the Lord to provide. They were setting a great example for all of us. Verse 4, imploring us. These churches were imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Well, the saints in Jerusalem. 
These Macedonian saints were imploring. They were begging to be part of this ministry of mercy to Jerusalem. Verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. This is the bottom line issue of giving to the Lord. God first and foremost desires that we give ourselves to him. Before we give money to God, we must first give ourselves. God could care less about your money until you give him your heart. Any other act of service or giving starts right there, initiated solely by God's Spirit within us. Verse 6, So we urged Titus, good old Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. So Paul encourages them to finish the the, the ministry of giving. He calls their offering a grace, an act of love. <laughs> I almost feel sorry for Titus, don't you? I mean, um, he has already been sent to deliver this tough news with the discipline letter from Paul. And here Titus is to hurry them along with their offerings to the Judean saints, to get them moving financially. We saw last week from Pastor Ted that Titus had been very successful delivering Paul's admonitions. These warnings and reprimands brought godly results. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry for how you've been, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Then later tonight, we're going to see more about Titus and what an extraordinary man he is. In verse 17, I'm just jumping ahead. Titus welcomed our request to do this, that he visit you again. In fact, he himself was very eager to go and see you. These next few verses, though, make me think that Paul had mixed feelings about these Corinthian believers. He's proud of their turnaround, their repentance reported by Titus. He says that in, in uh, verse 9 we read, that your sorrow led to repentance. And Paul stated in chapter 7 that he truly believes in their spiritual growth. Verse 16, remember he said, Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything that you're doing. But in verses 7 through 9 here, we can sense his hesitation. Will these men and women remain strong when the rubber meets the road? When the final offering has to be taken? Verse 7, he says, But as you abound in everything, such as in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love for us, See that you abound in this grace, this gift of grace that you're giving also. So Paul tells them he has great faith in their love, their devotion, their allegiance to Christ. They abound in all these spiritual gifts. But will their hearts abound in love for others, for strangers they don't even know, in their commitment to the needs of the poor Jerusalem saints? They've said that they want to give. Will they follow through with um, and complete the grace, this act of sacrificial, heartfelt love? So Paul says in verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Their love and generosity will be the symbol of their repentance, you might say. It's almost as if Paul is testing how genuine their love is by how it compares to the giving and the enthusiasm of the other churches as they give. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love this verse? That though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty 
might become rich. Who was more wealthy than God the Son in heaven? Our Lord made himself materially poor, not a a, a pillow to lay his head on, that we could be spiritually rich. Have these believers who used to be carnal, shallow Christians in in the past, have they truly repented and committed their welfare to God and His provision? You see, only Christ-like behavior can validate Titus's claim about what he saw in them. In 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter again, we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Well, next we come to the third principle of giving. That's found in verses 10 through 15. Giving should be measured proportionally according to your ability to give. Principle 3 and 5 are somewhat like a seesaw or a teeter-totter. Both are true and both are important, but they tend to work in balance. Have you ever been on a teeter-totter? They tend to work in balance. Let's talk about principle three here, and then we'll compare them when we get to number five in chapter nine. Verse 10. Verse 10. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, to do it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. Christianity and tennis are kind of alike. Every good serve requires a good follow-through. If you don't follow through, you don't have a good serve. Good intentions aren't enough. Gooda, woulda, shoulda, they just don't cut it. Paul says, now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now with how much you give. They started strong. Maybe they set a high financial goal to collect. But so far, that goal hasn't been reached. God only desires that you give in proportion to what you have. Verse 12. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. (laughs) Don't you like that verse? How practical can you get? I've told my my kids, I say, I don't mind giving you whatever I have. I just can't give you what I don't have. And that's my rule of thumb. If I don't have it, I'm not going to borrow it to give it to you. Uh, Paul says here, even though you had great plans of how much you could give to these poor, he's talking to them, these poor suffering brothers in Jerusalem, as you attempt to meet your goal, remember that the Lord doesn't expect you to give what you don't have. And that's principle number three. Our giving should be in in proportion to what God has provided for us. In other words, don't get hung up on the amount of your offering. What's important, as he says in verse 12, is a willing heart and mind. Verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality. This is the genius behind the simple tithe and tenth. It's kind of like this, that we all give a different amount, but the same percentage. Everybody learns the joys of giving, not just one wealthy benefactor. uh, God says that a meager tithe is as great as a massive tithe. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, the greatest giving mentioned in the New Testament was spoken by the words of Jesus about the widow's might. Your giving should not make it easy for others and hard on yourself. The only thing we should be asking ourselves is, am I giving my share? 
Am I giving what God has led me to give? Verse 14, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. So he's saying, right now you have plenty and you can give to those that are in need and later God will provide from others what you need. That's God's way. Uh, verse 15, Paul quotes Exodus 16:18, As it is written, He who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Have you ever experienced that? Your paycheck is big, and at the end of the month, it's gone. Your paycheck is small, and somehow you make it. Well, I call that the garage principle. You have a garage? If you have a garage, you know what I mean about that. No matter how large your garage is, it's always full to the rafters with all your stuff. And if you don't have a garage, a small storage shed will make do. That's just God's way. So um, Paul might have said it this way. <laughs> those who had a large garage had no space left over. Then those who only had a little garage had enough space. That's kind of the garage principle. Actually, this quote comes from Moses' instructions to the people about gathering the manna that God provided each morning. Each morning they would be provided exactly what they needed. This was accomplished by how they gathered the manna. Let's look at Exodus 18, verse 17. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, anybody know what an omer is? Me either. He who, I was going to look it up and I forgot. I think it's like about a, a, a bushel basket kind of thing, if I remember from way back. Do any of you remember way back when you were in seminary? That's further back than some of you have ever been. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. So God's promise in this to both us and the Israelites is that he will be faithful to meet our needs. And Moses said in verse 19, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So, when you don't trust the Lord and you're trying to store up a little extra on the side, that only results in worms and rot and stink in your life. Your neighbors will figure it out. Paul gives us the fourth principle in verses 16 through 24. Giving should be handled openly and honestly. Verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. He has the same enthusiasm for them that Paul had. For he not only accepted the exhortation, remember we read verse 17, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. In fact, it was even his idea. Verse 18, and we have sent him with the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. We're not, we're not sure who this brother is. Perhaps it's Luke or maybe Timothy. We don't know. Paul sends another brother with Titus, a man all the churches praise as a preacher of the good news. A man who was appointed by the churches to accompany them as they took the offering to Jerusalem. This special gift became a service of love that glorified the Lord and showed the Lord and others their eagerness to help the brothers of Christ in Jerusalem. Verse 20. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Well, what this means is, 
that these men are all traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way they're handling this generous gift. They're being careful to be honorable before the Lord, that's true, but they want everyone else to see with their own eyes that they're being honest and honorable as well. Verse 22, And we have sent with them our brother, I think he's referring again to Titus, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. So Titus has proven himself many times to Paul and to others. Verse 23, If anyone inquires about Titus, he's my partner. I want you to underline that. He's my partner. He's not only a fellow worker concerning you, he's my partner. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they're messengers or sent ones of the churches to glorify Christ. So Paul continues to put his stamp of approval on Titus. He says, if anyone asks about Titus, say he's my partner who works with me to help you. I was thinking about this as I read that. Some of you know my grandson, right? Well, I think Jared is a great example of what Paul is saying here about Titus. You see, Titus was a partner to Paul. See, I'm not a partner to my brother. We're not partners to Lee. We're associate. We're assistant pastors. But Pastor Jared, even though he's ministering to the youth right now, he's our co-pastor with Pastor Lee. That's how we see him. Lee's partner in the ministry at Open Gate. We will see Jared's increasing role of leadership becoming our lead pastor just as old Pastor Lee has been in the past. Well, that wasn't in my notes, but it hit me. I just, I wasn't going to say it. All day I tried not to say it. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? That when we look at, at Jared, we're looking at him as he is the man God has brought here to continue a ministry that a young guy started many years ago. So the brothers with Titus have been sent by the churches, men who bring honor to Christ. Paul ends this chapter touching on his discomfort, his worries that these Corinthian believers may fall short in their desire to give grace to the Jerusalem church. Verse 24, Therefore show to them, that's these men, and before the churches, the proof of your love and your, our boasting on your behalf. In other words, prove to all the churches that our boasting about you is justified. Well, I want to criticize Paul just a little bit. Maybe he shouldn't have been boasting so much. That's something we need to think about. We start boasting, and then we expect the Lord to back us up here. So, but we'll get into that. We're going to see in chapter 9 that Paul has boasted on the generosity and grace-giving of this Corinthian church, but he seems to have some apprehension about their ability to follow through. Well, let's take a look. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, Sunday, we're not going to have the words up here. So make sure Sunday you bring your Bibles, because we won't have the same... Um, visuals that we have now. Okay. Paul begins to talk here about collecting, transporting, administrating the gifts that are being collected from all these different churches. Verse 1. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it's superfluous or unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. In other words, um, Paul is referring here, Achaia, he's referring to Corinth, its capital. Corinth is like Sacramento. It's the capital of that state of Greece. And perhaps he's talking about the believers in Athens too. We don't know. 
He says, I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia about all of you there in Achaia that you, you were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm, he says, that stirred up the majority. It was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to start giving as well. But in verses 3 through 5, Paul's discomfort pops up its ugly head. Verse 3, Yet I have sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest, if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Well, Paul must see these young but growing believers in Corinth as his spiritual children. His spiritual preschoolers, perhaps. He's certainly treating them as a child. I say he's treating them like my folks used to treat me. Paul sends these older siblings to be sure they really are ready. I I can hear my father's voice now. Margie, go back in and see if Donnie's ready yet. You see, that's what Paul's doing. He's sending the big brothers or sisters. Paul's thinking we would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all that I've told them. Verse 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort or to encourage the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand. That's kind of the key. Prepare it beforehand which you have previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. At first this looks like Paul is trying to ramrod them, but he's not. He's really trying to be as kind to them and as loving and grace-giving as he can be. I'll show you what I mean in a minute. It's something we train teachers to do in the schools in Kentucky. I'll show you. See, Paul is sending these big brothers ahead to make sure the gift they promise is collected and ready. He doesn't want them to feel that this is done to put pressure on them when he comes. And these other people are there. He still wants their grace gift to be a willing gift, one not given grudgingly. He's sending Titus and another worker to remind them. Um, Our behavior training in the schools We call this reminding type of activity, we call it pre-correction. You see, when your kids are doing the wrong thing and you have to correct them, that's a negative. Nobody likes to be corrected in front of other people. So we call it, we we train teachers, do pre-correction. Let let me give you an example, two examples. So the elementary teacher lines up his or her students Uh, inside the classroom door as they're going to go to lunch. Then just before they go out the door into the hall, he reminds them. He says, remember, quiet behavior is important, especially when we pass Mr. Talley's class, because he speaks so softly we would disturb his lesson. And the kids go, yeah. And remember this, The students from Mrs. Smith's class will be joining us as we pass by her room. This week, we're supposed to be in front. So when her kids come out, if they start talking, let's show them how quiet we can be. Everybody with me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now you go out the door. You see, that's what Paul is trying to do with these Corinthian believers. These are believers that used to be carnal and mean to each other and critical of everybody. And he's got a good report that they're growing, that they had a sorrow that led to repentance, but they need some training. And so I think this is a loving thing. 
So Titus and his other workers remind them, or they pre-correct their behavior before Paul arrives with these believers from Macedonia. So this takes the pressure off the Corinthian believers. There won't be a stranger from Macedonia looking over their shoulder while they're digging in their pocket or their purse for their money. Now this brings us to the fifth principle of giving, found in verses 6 through 11 here. Giving will bring blessings to ourselves. This is the teeter-totter. You see, if we overweigh this, boy, I'm going to give because God's going to bless me, then this becomes a real imbalance that God finds hard to bless. Let let, let me look at it with you. Verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Your offering is like a seed. Plant or invest in God's work, and it will yield spiritual rewards. Now, some people see this verse as um, a what they call a seed faith principle. Also referred to maybe as word of faith or prosperity gospel. Teachers of the seed faith principle tell us to test God's faithfulness. The more money you send or seed that you plant... Um, or the more money you put in the offering motivates or moves God to give back to you. Well, there is one verse in the Old Testament that we're told to test God in this way. Any of you know where that verse is? It's in Malachi. My brother told me where to find it. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Let's read it. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and try me, or test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you such blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. In the next verses, it doesn't just talk about spiritual blessing. It talks about rain for their crops, and it talks about less pests in their crops, and greater crops, and all. Well, John Corson says this, Tithing makes good sense because God isn't going to be your debtor. And this is true. God is not going to be our debtor. You'll never be able to give more to him than he'll give back to you. He'll never owe you one. That's not who God is. But the problem I see of giving to the Lord, whether it's giving of our time or our talents or money, is strictly a matter of our heart. That's where it has to to be. Let me state the issue this way. It's the difference between give because and give so that. Let's look first at give so that. Let's look at that scenario. Do I give so that God will give back to me? A seed faith offering is money given in faith that God will multiply and return to the giver. The more money you give, the more faith you have, the more money you get in return. Are you giving money so that? So that the Lord will bless you financially? Well, what does the Bible say about it? The Bible teaches that we give for the sake of ministering to and benefiting others. And to glorify God, not for the purpose of enriching ourselves. That's not the purpose. I don't have this in my notes, but when I went to college, I worked at nights and made cans. I made cans at a can company downtown L.A. And I messed up the cans. I got canned at the can company. But it wasn't my fault. Because they didn't train me properly. I went back and they said, you're right, we'll give you a different job, one that we'll train you on. Uh, One of the problems was I didn't watch the flux so that when the seam was soldered, it wasn't clean enough to hold. And so my machine 
put out about 250,000 cans in those eight hours. And those 250,000 were mixed with another um, million and a half from the other machines. And they had to go through each can individually to check them and see. You can see why I was canned at the can company. That's just what happened. But <clears throat> they actually put me in a better job with more money. That's what happened. So, but my point is, is when they made the cans, some of the cans weren't made properly, but they found out that it, they could take them and sell them as metal. And it's a byproduct. You see, the purpose of giving is to glorify God. The byproduct may be that God blesses you. That's the byproduct. That's not the purpose. Well, let's go on. So, uh, one major false assumption of seed faith revolves around the idea that the Bible promises prosperity and health in this life if only the right faith or belief is utilized when people give and when people pray. A big problem with the teaching of seed faith is the notion that if a believer says or does certain things, such as claim a Bible promise or give money, that God is obligated to respond in a certain way by giving the specific expected response that the person gave for. And boy, can you get disappointed when you say, God, if you love me, you'll do this. Well, this contradicts the Bible teaching that only God knows what's best for us as believers. My favorite quote from my son in his bound of the wheelchair is, God has healed me from needing to be healed of the disease that I have. To be able to glorify him in this wheelchair for the rest of my life. That's the goal that God has for us. So let's go on. So when we demand that God performs according to my particular understanding of the Scripture, that's like tempting God. Remember what Satan did to Jesus? He tried to tempt Jesus. What was the one uh, temptation that he gave Jesus that tried to tempt God, not just Jesus? Remember he took him up on the pinnacle? Well, let me read that. Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil took Jesus up into the holy city, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. Here's what God said he would do. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash even your foot against a stone. And Satan is looking at Jesus quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and saying, ain't that what it says? And what did Jesus say to him? It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The statement found in Malachi that we read earlier is connected to the promises made to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that God would bless or curse his people depending on their obedience or disobedience to the law. And Dr. Walvers says this promise from Malachi was a reaffirmation of the obedience blessing relationship specified in the Mosaic law. God will bless you if you obey me in this area of giving. What the people at that time were experiencing, he says, during Malachi's day, was they were experiencing a disobedience curse arrangement because they were living in disobedience. So this covenant was a gracious provision for Israel, and no other nation was given promises like that from God. We need to be careful when we apply these promises to believers today. The Mosaic Covenant with its promises of material blessings to Israel for her obedience is no longer in force. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. 
For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. In verse 15, He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations and promises. From the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection, all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, are saved by grace and grace alone. The promises or covenants made with Israel, the system of the law, was ended, made obsolete. In Hebrews, we see that, chapter 8, verse 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. We're living under grace, and grace changes everything. My giving back to the Lord is simply my response to His unrelenting grace and mercy poured out on me every day. Based on the doctrine of seed faith offerings, Paul should have been a rich man, shouldn't he? Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 4. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands, being reviled we bless, being persecuted we endure. The apostles were materially poor, yet they were spiritually blessed beyond measure by God. So, if your offering is an attempt to buy God's pardon or blessing or favor, then put your dirty money back in your wallet. We don't give to get. We give to show our gratitude. Giving is a response. God has been so good to us, our giving to Him is our way of saying thanks. The New Testament speaks about generosity and giving. Well, it doesn't require in the New Testament a tithe of believers today. Right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it speaks of God's blessing on those who give generously to the needs of God's people. Paul says in verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're to decide in our heart how much to give. Not giving reluctantly or in response to any outside pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. (laughs) I like what Sandy Adams says. When I want something that really kind of brings it out where I can understand it, I'll ask what, what Sandy has to say. He says this, Pastors tend to use three different approaches toward raising money. The flint, the sponge, and the honeycomb. He says the flint has to be struck to get a spark, and some pastors browbeat their people into giving. He says the sponge needs to be squeezed. So some pastors use various gimmicks to pressure people into giving. But the honeycomb oozes. Its inner sweetness oozes out. And so Sandy says, this is my approach. By helping you cultivate an inner appreciation of God's grace, giving will overflow. So we're not, we're to give because. Because God has already demonstrated his love through Jesus. We might even say, give and Give and trust God to bless us as He chooses and sees fit. Give because is a gratitude principle to the Lord, recognizing that He's blessed us. It's found in the Scriptures before the law was given. I've got three we'll read real quickly here. Our time is starting to run out. Deuteronomy 15.10 Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Exodus 25.2 Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts 
are moved to offer them. And then I love how David was affected. Second First Chronicles. The people rejoiced over the offerings, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And King David was filled with joy. The gratitude principle is God's promise that if we truly feel led by God's Spirit to give finances, time, or talents, God will bless us beyond measure from His abundance and according to His wisdom. As my brother told me, you can't outgive the Lord. But someone also said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Our motive for giving should not be to get money or privilege in return. Our goal should be to give God glory. And for ourselves, that God would build in us godliness with contentment. We should pray, Lord, help me to learn to be content no matter what I have or how hungry or in need I am. That's how Paul was in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And here's where this verse comes and this is why. I can do all things. I think he's, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 8, And God who is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. In other words, by His grace He will generously provide everything we need and plenty left over to share with others. And to drive home the point, point he quotes psalm 112 verse 9 as it is written he has dispersed abroad he has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever those who give generously to the poor the scriptures say their good deeds will be remembered by the lord forever verse 10 now may he who supplies seeds to the sower and bread for food Supply and multiply the seed you have sown. It's God who supplies the seed for sowing. He supplies the resources for us to generously give it away. And when we give it away, He supplies more resources to continue the giving. Verse 10 finishes by telling how we'll be blessed in this. And increase the fruits of your righteousness. Our reaping in this promise is not monetary gain, but the fruits or the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. It is prayers of thanksgiving to God that overflow liberally. The seed sown in this passage does enrich us. It enriches us in our personal life, but not uh, resulting in miracles or personal wealth. So Paul takes this thought from Proverbs 11.25. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. So now we come to the last principle found in verses 12 through 15. Let's hurry and get, get to them. Giving will bring glory to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. In other words, what will result is they will have a joyful express of their thanks to God from those who are blessed by their giving. Verse 13, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. The brothers in Jerusalem will give glory to God and your gift will give proof that you're growing spiritually. But best of all, God will be glorified. And isn't that the bottom line? of all that we're to say or do. Verse 14, And by their prayer for you, 
who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. I like this thought. Last but certainly not least, the gift to these Jerusalem brothers and sisters just keeps on giving. Only in this case, it comes back to you in the form of how much they love you and how much they pray for you. Paul says they'll pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace through you. And Paul is right on target as we finish this chapter together. He says, verse 15, Thanks be to God for what? His indescribable gift. For this gift, in the Greek it's His gift, is too wonderful for words. How fitting that Paul wraps up this discussion on our giving by reminding the Corinthian church and you and me of the greatest gift ever given, God's indescribable gift of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gifts to us. And Lord, may our giving of all that we are simply be a response of gratitude to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. It's so good to see you and smell you and even elbow you a little bit. Yeah, it isn't as lonely. Thanks for being here.